If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16? We're staying in our series, The Story of Scripture, and if you're following along, you know that we are far past Leviticus. However, when we were reading through Leviticus in our one-year reading, there was just so much uh, good things that are pointing to Jesus, and we just didn't have enough time to cover all of them. And, and a lot of the questions I've gotten through the series have come from Leviticus. And so I want to take an opportunity. I want us to come back to Leviticus, where we're still in the Old Testament, and asking the question, how does this point to Jesus? And Leviticus chapter 16 is where God gives commandments for the Day of Atonement, and it is one of the most important and clearest pictures of what Jesus has done for us on this incredible Easter day. And so if you have your Bibles, Leviticus chapter 16. Now we're going to read through at, throughout the sermon through most parts of Leviticus, but I, or 16, but I want to begin just reading verse 29 to the end of the chapter because it will give just a good summary so that we can kind of get the context to know exactly what we're looking at in case you've never read Leviticus 16 before. But Leviticus chapter 16, beginning in verse 29, if you would just read along with me. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you, for you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever." And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make, at make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you. That atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Four things I want us to look at today in this text as we think through that. First, we see and we'll look at the person who makes the atonement. Second, we'll look at the means where the atonement is made. Third, we'll look at the effects of the atonement. And then fourthly, we'll look at what is our response to the atonement. For first, let's look at the person who makes the atonement. I want you to look at Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 11. It says this, Aaron shall present a bull as a sin offering for himself. Now Aaron's going to be the high priest that is going to go in and he is going to be the person who is to make atonement. Now, when it, on the day of atonement, this was a special sacrifice that was made once a year. And we're going to talk about all the details behind it. But first we see that a high priest had to make this sacrifice. The high priest, there's only one in the land. And the high priest is to make the sacrifice. But look at this. Aaron is that high priest at the moment. It says this, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. We're going to see atonement made for a lot of things. We're going to see atonement made for the people as a whole. We're going to see atonement made for over places to make sure they're holy. But I want us to see at the beginning of this, that the high priest, in order to make a holy sacrifice on behalf of the people, he first had to be made holy. 
And so we start, who is it, who is the person who is able to enter into God's most holy place and to make a atonement sacrifice for the people? It is a high priest who is holy. Aaron was not holy in above himself because he had sin. So verse 11 tells us that he had to make a sacrifice for himself so that he could be covered, then he could go in and be holy. What's the important fact as we think about this is simply that the person who steps in and makes a sacrifice for the sins of all the people must be holy. When we think about Jesus, and we're going to connect it to Jesus because this is a picture of Jesus all throughout, we know Jesus to be sinless. We know Jesus to be perfect This is one of the reasons at Christmas when we celebrate the birth of Christ, we celebrate the fact that he was virgin born. Why why is that important? It's absolutely important to this fact. Romans 5 says, as well as Psalms 51, which we read last week, but Psalms 51 and Romans chapter 5 make it clear that at the moment we are conceived, that we are born with a sinful nature, that because of Adam's sin in Genesis chapter 3, every human that has lived since that moment has inherited sinfulness, has been unclean, has been unholy because of their sin. But the fact that Jesus is virgin born communicates it is essential because he did not inherit that sinful nature. So he didn't inherit the sinful nature, therefore he's holy. And then continued to live holy and did not sin holy. So when he steps in on Good Friday, what we celebrated just a couple days ago, when he steps in and he goes to the cross for us, he is the high priest who comes in and does what? He is sinless and he is holy, and he is the person who's able to make that sacrifice. So we see the person who makes the sacrifice, he must be a spotless high priest. Second, I want you to look at Leviticus 16, 17, along with still in truth number one, a sub-point to truth number one, is that the person who made the, uh, the atonement, he was spotless, but verse 17 tells us that he was also by himself. Look at uh, Leviticus 16, 17. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he, the high priest, enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. See, when we look at the person who made the high, or the high priest, the person who made the atonement for the people in Leviticus 16, is that person had to be spotless. That person had to be holy, but he also had to be alone. It wasn't the high priest plus others who made atonement for the sins. There's no one else around. But everything we read in Leviticus 16, the high priest would do by himself. Every sacrifice, everything he would do by himself. That way there would be no question as to as if the high priest, the holy person in Israel, was the one who did it. Because if there's other people around, the question might be, did, did the high priest actually be the one who made the sacrifice or did someone else? Because if someone else did it, then the sacrifice isn't sufficient. Do you think it's unique at all that all of Jesus' disciples abandoned him? See, we look at Jesus' disciples leaving him by himself and, and first it's discouraging, but I want us to see something is the fact that Jesus was by himself. Now we understand there are onlookers, But the point is, is there was no question on who was being sacrificed. It wasn't Jesus plus others and his disciples that were being sacrificed. Now, yes, there were thieves on the cross, but no one's questioning 
whether they were the ones who made sacrifices for the sins of the people. See, it was Jesus and no one else. He was a spotless lamb who was by himself. Why? Because his sacrifice was sufficient. It's not Jesus plus some other sacrifice. It's Jesus by himself as the high priest making the sacrifices for our sins. So Leviticus 16 is already given a roadmap to who Jesus is and what he must do for us. He must be a high priest. And we don't have time, but if you go read Hebrews 9 and 10, especially Hebrews 9, it, it, the writer of Hebrews is preaching a sermon, basically the sermon I'm preaching, explaining how Jesus was indeed the high priest of Leviticus 16. He indeed was the high priest who went in and made a sacrifice. But let us see that who is the person who can make atonement for the sins of the people? It must be a high priest who is holy, sinless, and by himself. Jesus alone is the means in which our sins are atoned for. He is that high priest. He would say it himself when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you're listening to this today, might you see, no matter what else gets said, the scriptures of the Christian scriptures, the Bible, the gospel of Jesus is clear. Salvation is through Jesus and Jesus alone. It's clear that you need salvation. It's not a question. If you go, well, uh, that's fine if you think Jesus is the way, but I don't think I even need Jesus. M might you see that we do have sins and because God is holy, as you read Leviticus 16, see the details of what the high priest had to do to make sure that when he entered the most holy place, which he was only allowed to enter once a year, which was behind a veil, the holies of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence dwelt here on earth, he could enter there once a year to make a sacrifice for the sins of the people, only once a year. I want you to see the details of the need for the forgiveness of sins, and then let us see that Jesus and Jesus alone, Scripture is pointing to as the spotless high priest who he by himself laid his life on the altar, died on the cross, and then what we celebrate today on Easter was resurrected to life. But let us see, Leviticus 16 makes it clear that the high priest had to be spotless and he had to be by himself. Truth number two, as we look at this, first is the person, we just looked at that, but second, what was the means by which the person made this sacrifice? Leviticus 16 verses 18 and 19 would say this, then he, the high priest, shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take the blood, some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some blood, some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. Now here's there's gonna be a few sacrifices that are made cleansing different things. And here's just a picture that even the altar had to be cleansed. And all throughout as we read Leviticus 16, we're just gonna read that example of it. When we read Leviticus 16, what was the means by which sacrifice and atonement was made for? It was through the shedding of blood. Once again, if we were to go to Hebrews and read Hebrews 9, and I wanna encourage you to do so, maybe not now, but afterwards, is read Hebrews 9, and Hebrews 9.22 says this, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That the means of atonement is through a sacrifice. 
The means of atonement is through the blood of a spotless animal that is sacrificed for the sins of the people. That's Leviticus 16. Jesus would make it clear on the night that he was betrayed just a few nights ago within the Holy Week as we look at it, is that he would say, I am the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He was saying, I am that spotless Lamb that through the shedding of my blood, Jesus would say, all your sins will be forgiven. Leviticus 16 and all the Old Testament is pointing to a need for a sacrifice. Now I want you to get something. Leviticus 16 would say this day of atonement where this one time the high priest, after he was made holy, and twice in this chapter we see him baptized and literally washed and he's cleansed and all these sacrifices. Then he could come into the holies of holies. And once a year he would have to make a sacrifice. I want us to get this, once a year. Now that's not a lot, but listen to me. It would happen this year, and then it would happen next year, and then it would happen again. Why? Because what we're beginning to see is in the Old Testament, there's an insufficient sacrifice. No matter how many animals got sacrificed, no matter how many Day of Atonements in the Old Testament happened where an animal was sacrificed, it was insufficient. But guess what? Jesus is the means, and through his shedding of blood, the forgiveness of sins for all the world, and it is a sufficient sacrifice. There's not a need for another sacrifice. There's not a need for the temple within Israel culture to continue to make sacrifices. Within Christians, we recognize what, what's with all these sacrifices in the Old Testament? Do we still need them today? No, because every sacrifice in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus and the ultimate sacrifice where he as the spotless lamb, sinless by himself, would go on a cross and would shed his blood for us for the forgiveness of our sins once and for all. So when we see the effects, or excuse me, the means whereby the atonement was made, it was through the shedding of blood. But that leads to truth number three, is what are the effects of the atonement? The person who made the atonement, truth number one, the means that that person made the atonement, and then thirdly, what are the effects of the atonement? Two answers to that third question, what are the effects of the atonement? The first is there's sanctification of things that are unholy are made holy. Leviticus 16, verses 15 and 16 say this. Then he, once again the high priest, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. There's a, the veil's an important place within the story, but he brings the blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus she, he shall make atonement for the holy place. Because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. Once again, here's another example of him making a sacrifice and putting blood on it in order to cleanse it. And what's the picture? Through the shedding of blood, that which is unholy, when it is covered up with the blood that was sacrificed, of the animal that was sacrificed, then it is made holy. It is what? Sanctified. It is set apart by God as holy because of the shedding of blood. So what? The effects of that sacrifice is when the blood touches it, that which is unholy becomes holy. Can you see the connection of the story of Jesus in the New Testament? This is what the New Testament writers want to try to make incredibly clear. It's what 
the Gospels are trying to make clear. It's why all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all end pointing to the crucifixion because they're trying to make it clear to their audience as I'm trying to make it clear to you, the audience who I'm speaking to today, that you and I, before the blood of Jesus touches us, are unholy. And unholy means we cannot enter into God's presence. We cannot enter in behind the veil. And remember, on the other side of the veil is God's most holy place. There is a separation between that is holy and that which is unholy. But through the shedding of blood, when it touches you, that then there's this cleansliness that allows you to come into the presence of God. That it's through the blood of Jesus that you and I, which are unholy before that moment, are made holy. That is through his blood, when we put our faith and trust in him, that he makes us alive, that he covers us with his blood, that we are fully forgiven, and that we are able to come into his presence. I want us to see that if the blood of Jesus never covers us up individually, then we remain unholy and for all eternity are unwelcome into the presence of God. This is the gospel message. It's a tough message, but it's a glorious message that you are unholy and you will not and cannot come into his presence without being destroyed. But through this sacrifice of God himself and Jesus, when he shed his blood and he poured his blood on you in salvation, when you put your faith in him, that touching made you holy not because of your own doing, but because of his own doing. That he, Jesus, who knew no sin, went to the cross and bore our sin for us, the wrath that you and I deserve. This is what Good Friday is. It was the moment on the cross. He died for us so that, Scripture says, so that you might receive his righteousness and holiness. He took what we deserved so that we could have what we did not deserve. We are made holy. What are the effects of the atonement? Is that when the blood of the atonement touches something, it is made holy. When the blood of Jesus touches you in salvation, you are made holy. And then lastly, second answer to question number three, what are the effects of the atonement? It kind of goes along with this, but I want to make it clear. The second answer is that their sins were taken away. Look at verse 20 and 22 of Leviticus 16. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness, by someone who's ready. Verse 22, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on himself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Part of the story that we didn't read is that two goats were presented. One goat was sacrificed as a means for atonement and the other goat, which what we just read, called the scapegoat, part of where we get the saying of a scapegoat, is they would lay their hand on its head and they would speak all the sins and then the goat would be set free in the wilderness to signify through the atonement of the other goat and through that shedding of blood, this other live goat running free is a picture of all their sins taken away. The sins are no longer in the camp. And I want us to see 
that this is very unique. And Jesus points to this and fulfills this in the moment when he sacrificed, his life was that sacrifice. And through the shedding of his blood, there's the remission of sins. And I want us to see that the sins are free. They're no longer in the camp. Their sins are forgiven. I want you to see that right now in this moment, I pray that you are feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, meaning that you have never called upon him as Savior, you've never cried out to him asking him to forgive you of your sins and to touch you with his blood, so to speak. If you never asked him to do that, if you never called on him as Lord and Savior, I pray that right now you feel a conviction in your heart. You feel the weight of your sin. And I want you to understand that is not God condemning you. If you can feel the weight of your sin, that is God convicting you. And he is inviting you to surrender where he is that scapegoat for us who took on all of our sin. So it's no longer on us. It's on the goat. It's on Jesus on the cross. It's no longer on you. But you gotta confess, you gotta call on to him and see that your sins are set free if you are son and daughter of Jesus. You're son and daughter of the King. If you call upon him as Lord and Savior, this is the gospel message. So what happens is once their sins are forgiven, then they're able to enter into the veil. We read about that a minute ago where the high priest, after the sacrifice was made, he was able to enter into the veil. Now, remember, he could only do this once a year, that the timing had to be perfect that the timing had to be a certain day. There had to be no one else around. It was a planned time by God. And the high priest would enter in into the holies of holies. And you could not, if you went across that veil at any time other than that at that exact moment, and if you were not holy in any way, then you would enter in and you immediately die because that which is unholy, when it comes into the presence of that which is holy, immediately faces destruction unless you are made holy first as you enter in. See, the veil behind the veil is the holy of holies. It's where you and I long to be. It's, it's to be in the presence of God. It's to be right there with him where we see his face. See, the story of scripture as we look through it is, can be summarized as a story where before sin, we walked in God's presence and we saw his face. But due to sin, we're no longer to be in his presence and can no longer see his face. And we see in Old Testament and in New Testament, writers talk about longing to see the face of God. They just wanna be with him. They wanna be right there in the Holy of Holies where they can see his face. But Revelation 22 says, one day God will make all things new and we will see his face. That means that the veil which separates that which is holy and unholy is no longer. And we see this, this is why Matthew, in Matthew chapter 27, talking about the moment that Christ was crucified, at that very moment where he said, Jesus cried out on the cross and said, it is finished. I want you to read what happens in Matthew 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple, the veil, was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Why is Matthew giving us that detail? Why is it important? It's just a curtain, right? No, it's not just a curtain. It was a curtain that represented a separation from God who is holy and man who is unholy. And because of Jesus' sacrifice in the moment 
that it was finished. The veil was torn. And Matthew is making it very clear through this act that God supernaturally causes it. it says, he, Matthew says from top to bottom, it's making it clear that it didn't start at the bottom, top to bottom, meaning God downward, the veil is torn and broken, which means you can now enter freely into the holies of holy through the sacrifice of Jesus. Do you get it? Do you see it? That through Jesus, the veil is torn and we are able to come in. So what are the effects of the atonement? Is that that which is unholy is made holy. That which is full of sin, sins are forgiven and taken away. And the people are able to enter into the holies of holies. We're able to enter in once again into the presence of God through Jesus. This is why Easter weekend is so important. That's why it's everything. Lastly, though, verse or truth number four is what is our response to all of this? What's our response to the atonement? I want you to look at Leviticus 16, verse 29. We read this a minute ago, but it says this, and it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the day of the month, notice the details, it's important. The timing is important. And pause for a second. When you read the gospels, have you ever noticed, if you read John, it's the clearest, something will happen and Jesus will say, it's not my time. It's not my time yet. It's not my time yet. But then when it comes to Holy Week, that week that he was crucified, he says, now my time has come. Do you see the detail and the importance that it was at just the right time that the atonement was made? See that in Leviticus 16? It had to be on a certain day of a certain month. The timing was important. Why is the timing important? Because it speaks to God's sovereignty over all of it. God was sovereignly working in Jesus that at the right time, it was not an accident, but God in his sovereignty, it was planned before the foundation of the world. So at this certain time, listen to this, the rest of verse 29, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Twice it says afflict yourselves. What, is, what does that mean? It's, the translation can be difficult, some of the meaning, but essentially commentators all agree that it has to do with fasting. It has to do with humbling yourself. It has to do with this place of just humility. Here's basically what is our response? What does Leviticus 16 tells us? It tells us that we are to stop doing all that we're doing and we humble ourselves and turn towards the sacrifice of the atonement. We stop, we turn, and we humbly worship the forgiveness of sins. We humbly worship God for the forgiveness of sins. What is your response? Might you see that your response can be, should be, the only proper faithful response to this is to stop and turn to Jesus. Stop what? Stop running from Jesus. Stop trying to find salvation in something else. Stop trying to find identity and purpose in the things of this world. Just stop the busyness, even for the Christian listening to this. How does this apply to me? Just stop a moment and reflect. We're here on Easter, and we're just like every Sunday, but Easter Sunday, as we are here thinking about this, we're stopping and reflecting on what Jesus has done for us. It's one of the reasons why every Sunday we gather together, because we stop the busyness of outside of the gathering and we stop and we reflect 
and our response is of worship to God for what he has done for us. Our adoration is to Jesus for what he has done for us. Might your response be today, worship Jesus. If you're listening to this and you wouldn't say, you go, you know what, I I don't know that I'm a follower of Jesus. I don't know that I'm a Christian. I don't know that I'm saved. Whatever language you may have heard or used to relating to Christianity. But it's really as simple as this, is that what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you're fully surrendered to Jesus and the sacrifice of the crucifixion thousands of years ago that when Christ shed his blood, that that blood has covered you and washed all your sins away because you have called upon him as Lord and Savior. And then you follow him and you live your life for him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And if you're listening to this, you go, you know what, I don't don't think that's me. Might your response be today, would you just turn to Jesus? Pastor, what do I say? Do I gotta pray a certain prayer? Do I gotta make things right? Listen to me. The best way I could encourage you is I remember when my kids were beginning to learn to talk. When they first said their first words or their first sentence, it was not grammatically correct. They didn't even pronounce it all that great. But guess what? As their loving father, I was shouting for joy because I was grateful that they were beginning to talk to me. I was grateful that they were communicating with me. I was grateful that they were calling out to me because I love them and I just want to commune with them and I want to talk with them. Listen to me, I really believe it's not all that different with God. A lot of times we don't come to him and maybe now you're hesitant. I don't know what to say to God. Listen to me. I really believe that if you just start talking, I don't think he's up in heaven going, man, they didn't say that right. It's not, it's not God at all. It's not his heart at all. But instead, he just wants to communicate with you. And he has given us his word. And so I encourage you right now, what do you pray? What do you say? I just encourage you to start sharing what's on your heart. Romans 10 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. What does it speak from your heart? The connection there in that phrase is what comes out of your mouth must be connected to your heart. So what's in your heart? Do you want to surrender to him as Lord? Just cry out from your heart and go, Jesus, I want to surrender to you. I confess my sins to you. He sees your heart. Allow your heart to come out. Would you turn to him in this moment and might you surrender your life to Jesus? I want us to see something that's not in this text. It's intentional that's not in this text because it's what makes Easter, Easter, ultimately. See, Leviticus 16 really gives a beautiful picture to what Good Friday was two days ago. But you want to know something that's not in Leviticus 16? There's not a resurrection in Leviticus 16. So when I talk about what makes Easter ultimately special today is the fact that Jesus is not in the tomb, but he is raised from the dead, I can't preach that from Leviticus 16 because it's not there. Because when we look at the resurrection, it is what makes part of what makes the New Testament new. When Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, during the Passover meal with his disciples, what we now know and celebrate part of the Lord's Supper, 
when he talks about the cup and the wine, the cup of redemption, he says, this is my blood that is shed for you and this is the new covenant in my blood. It's new. That's why the Old Testament, New Testament, if you're listening to this and didn't know, Testament is just the word for covenant. So Old Covenant, Old Testament, New Covenant, New Testament. That it's the story of when Jesus shed his blood and he was resurrected from the grave, how everything is made new, even your own very life. When we celebrate today at Easter, we celebrate that Jesus did not just die for us, but he is now alive for us and he is on his throne. Ephesians 1 says that the power of the Father worked in the Son and raised him to life and now he is seated on his throne in heaven and that he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that has been named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Here's what he's saying. No matter the name, no matter the person, no matter the definition of authority, no matter the time, no matter the location, Jesus is supreme above all, not just because he died, although that was necessary, but because he didn't stay dead, but he is resurrected to life. And Romans 6 makes it clear that if we are in Christ, we too will never die again, spiritually that is. Yes, we will die physically, but they, but scripture makes it clear and says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Romans chapter nine says that it is appointed unto man to die once and then to face the judgment. So at the moment we die, we will stand before God. And as Christians, we will live eternally with him. As non-Christians, you too, scripture says, will live eternally, but just not with him. But you will live eternity in separation. And so I call you and I give you maybe the unpopular part of the gospel because our culture today just wants to say God is loving. But listen to me, if God is loving but he ignores sin, then that means he doesn't really love you. But a loving God is a jealous God and a jealous God calls us to be holy. And the story of scripture is that we are unholy, but through Jesus, we can be made holy and therefore we can come into his presence. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone that we enter into salvation. Now I told you, Hebrews 9 is a wonderful explanation of everything we're saying. I just want to read a few verses of Hebrews 9 to you that summarizes this. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his creation, not, excuse me, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Remember we talked about in the Old Testament, they had to do it every year, but here it's saying Jesus, because he is the perfect high priest. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how might that also purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Do you see Hebrews tells us that Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. He was that perfect high priest who by means sacrificed himself so that the effects, the forgiveness of sins that we might be made holy would come to completion. 
So the last question is, what is your response? Might you respond today by surrendering your life to Jesus? Call out to Jesus who is not dead, but he is alive. And we're celebrating that the tomb is empty. And one day we will see him face to face. All of us will see him face to face. And scripture says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, both Christians and non-Christians. The difference is that after that, Christians will spend eternity with him where those who have never surrendered to him before that moment will spend eternity away from him. I beseech you and I encourage you, don't wait until that day to surrender, but surrender now where there's still an offering for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are alive and we thank you that the tomb is empty We thank you that two days on that Friday, the third day from the Easter Sunday, the third day before, that you died for our sins, that you shed your blood so that I never have to, at least not for eternity. You shed your blood so that I could be made holy. You shed your blood so that the veil could be torn and that we could enter into the holies of holies which is your throne room for all eternity. And we thank you that in that moment on Friday, it seemed like tragedy, but Sunday morning you rose from the dead in triumph and that there is triumph amidst tragedy. And we are thank you that when it comes to Jesus, there is always triumph amidst tragedy. So Jesus, I pray over those that are listening right now, personally for them, if they have never surrendered to you as Lord and Savior, that they would call out to you for salvation right now in this moment. They would recognize their sin. They would do what scripture says and confess their sin with their mouth and from their heart and believe that you were raised from the dead, that you are alive and they would call upon you as the victorious Savior. And then would you sprinkle them with your blood? Would you wash them clean? Would you make them white as snow? The scripture says that if you call on to him, he is faithful every single time to forgive you of your unrighteousness, of your sin. So Jesus, I pray that over them, everybody that's listening, that many in this moment would surrender their life to you. And then lastly, Father, I pray for everybody that's listening, Christian and even the non-Christian that's listening, would they see the story of Easter is a promise that in Jesus, there is always triumph amidst tragedy. And so Jesus, I pray that that truth would ring loud in our hearts because many of us with the what is going on in the world around us right now, all we can see is tragedy. All we can see is hurt. We don't understand. It's, it's like many on Good Friday and on Saturday. All they could see was tragedy. The, the King of Kings, their, the King of the Jews, their Messiah had died on Friday. I can imagine people on Saturday, Jesus, are going, what happened This is not the way it was supposed to go. I don't understand. I can imagine many were going, why God did this happen? What is going on? And they just couldn't see yet. But Sunday was coming. 
and triumph was coming. Jesus, right now, many of us are in Saturday. Many of us are in Saturday in our hearts. Many of us are in Saturday when we look at the world around us. We don't understand. We don't see. We're crying out, why, God? But the good news of the gospel will tell us, and through Jesus, there's a promise that Sunday is always coming. There is always a triumph in Jesus, even amidst tragedy. So right now, Jesus, I pray over this world. And we're in a Saturday moment where we don't quite understand the tragedy and the hurt around us, but we know in Jesus, triumph is coming, that you're doing something even though we can't see it. The greatest moment of tragedy in all of history is the moment you died, but it was also the means for the greatest moment of victory. And so in moments where we look around and see great tragedy, we gotta trust in your sovereignty that you're working a great victory. We trust you. And pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.